Like, you have to know what the book says because that's what you get graded on. But in real life, I'm grading you on what you know for real. And these books aren't going to teach it to us until we're the ones to start writing the books. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? My name is Tyler Winters. Me llamo es Tyler Winters. Je m'appelle Tyler Winters. I am a foreign language instructor. Soy una maestra de espanol et francés. Je suis un professeur du le français et espanol. And Black educators matter because we are everywhere, but yet we don't know our story. We don't know our history. We don't know our place. And I'm here to give it back. Now, where are you from, Miss Winters? I'm from Chicago. I call myself a South Sider, but I was born out West. So I've lived on the West side of Chicago. I've lived in Algale Gardens, which was part of Chicago public housing. And I now currently reside in, on the South side of Chicago. So I'm from everywhere. I'm just a little black girl from Chicago. So you've had exposure to all sides of the city. If you can remember your K through eight experience, I don't know if it took place out west or in Oakdale Gardens or on the south side, but what was your K through eight experience like as a little black girl from Chicago? So kindergarten through second grade, I went to um, J.A. Thorpe, which was a magnet school on the north side. I lived out west, but I was bused to this magnet school on the north side. I don't remember very many of my teachers, but I definitely remember my first grade teacher. Her name was Miss Scully. She was this white lady. And I remember we were we were going to be doing an international assembly. And so everybody was talking about where they were from and, you know, they were like, oh, I'm Irish or I'm Polish. And I was like, I'm an African-American princess. And this teacher told me that I was Nigerian. Me, me and the one other black kid at the school, she told us both that we were Nigerian. So I go home and tell my mom, like, we're Nigerian. And my mom's like, no, we're not. And had to go up to the school and correct that teacher. So that was my K through second. Third through sixth grade, I went to McDade Classical School on the south side of Chicago, which is where I was introduced to foreign language. I started taking French in third grade. And then for high school, no, I'm just sticking to K through eight, correct? Yeah, but you can tell us about your high school if you want to go straight into that too. Oh, and then after high, for high school, then I went to Morgan Park Academy. I know Danielle went to Morgan Park Public and whatever. You couldn't make it up the hill, but that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I went to the school up the hill for high school. We Morgan used Park. to run the hill for track practice. Thank you. I couldn't make it up the hill. But that just goes to show Chicago is such an incredibly diverse and huge and segregated city that um, there are schools that are up the hill, down the street, because even if we were to name the high schools in our area, we got Chaz, Julian, Morgan Park Academy, Morgan Park, Brooke went to Gwendolyn Brooks, a.k.a. Southside Prep. So those are all... Which used to be Mendel way back in the day. Yep, so like all of those things are near each other. So why did your teacher think you were Nigerian? I think that was just the only app reference to Africa that she knew and she called herself being inclusive you know while all of these white kids were talking about their European heritage or whatnot and in her mind she thought she was like oh no you're not just American you're not you know like 
like to, uh, maybe to her nigeria equals africa hashtag black educators matter because baby what are you talking about Ooh, okay so now we got these different experiences k through 12 where did you go to college and when you went to college did you know that you were going to be a foreign language instructor I went to college at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I-L-L-I-N-I. Although uh, we fought to retire the racist chief, we did work. We absolutely did. And it, and, then, and we did and we won. I did not know that I, I wanted to be an educator. I went to school as a pre-law major. But everybody knows, like, pre-law isn't really, like, a major. It's a study. You know, it's a set of coursework that you take to prepare yourself for law school. But I went in thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. I pursued my bachelor's in English and in French and graduated with both. But I, I still then didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher. Actually, I graduated undergrad and then went to culinary school. So I've kind of been all over the place, but every job that I've ever had has involved children. Even when I was managing a banquet hall, we ran an after-school matters program that was funded by the city. So I had I was teaching culinary arts to kids, and we were doing culinary arts competitions. I've been a lunch lady. When I was in high school, I was a camp counselor. Like everything that I've done has always been with children and it just kind of made sense for me to fall into it. So what led you to actually begin a career in education? Well, I was teaching French at preschools part time, like just once a week or a couple of times a week. And then I actually got the opportunity to start teaching preschool. And I loved it. I loved the babies. And I taught them French. I taught them Spanish. I taught them Swahili. We did a little bit of everything. And I'm going to plug you. I can't help it. When I got into, well, I guess it's not higher ed because it's not collegiate level, but into the formal arena of teaching, I didn't want it. I did not want it. I didn't want to deal with people's grown kids I didn't I was like no babies cry when they're supposed to I can deal with that babies don't know how to use their words I can deal with that what I can't do is a 17 year old hollering and fussing I I can't I won't I won't do it and Mrs. Danielle Munningham just would every so now and then nudge me a little bit like hey don't you don't you want to, don't you want to be a teacher? Don't, don't you want to teach high school? Don't you want to, nah, girl, I don't, I don't want to do that. Oh, okay. And then a couple of weeks will go by like, Hey, don't you, don't you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, nah, girl, I don't want to do this. This chick takes my resume and just goes in and sends it off. Like, yeah, whatever. I don't care what she's talking about. And, and then, so I was contacted by the school, by the vice, the assistant principal of the school to come in for an interview. But the crazy thing is, is when I first got the interview, I wasn't even in the country. I was in Greece. And the email got lost, like just in in the throes of my email over that time. So then they sent a follow-up email and I was like, oh snap. Because then I saw the old one and was like, oh, okay. I went in and interviewed for a Spanish teaching position and got hired and well before I even got hired I let them know my bread and butter is French that's my strongest suit I will always let people know that I interviewed as the Spanish teacher but then was hired as the Spanish and French teacher so they added French to the curriculum because that was my stronger language and I do both very well and um so yeah, that's how I got into teaching. 
Mrs. Danielle Money. <laughs> because what people don't, if people do not know my journey, I was a teacher recruiter. So I worked at several schools. I knew that there was a need. I also knew that it was incredibly difficult to find foreign language teachers. I also knew that I had a homegirl with incredible skills. I also knew that there were students that needed access to an incredible teacher. So I could not, in good consciousness, just walk away and not make this connection. I didn't get her hired. All I did was share a resource. So, you know, I'm just so glad that you decided to take your talents into the classroom and share it (laughs) with the students. So you've taught across, you work with kids in different areas. How long were you a foreign language instructor? Just a foreign language instructor, two years. And how did you find, well, not even how, did you find as a black woman teaching high schoolers a foreign language, a shared sense of identity and connectedness? And if so, how did you identify it? At first, no, but it wasn't from my end. I think, as you stated earlier, Chicago is a very, very segregated city. Like, if you're black, you live with black people, you work with black people, you go to school with black people, and, like, your world is a general black bubble. And the same could be said if you're Mexican in this city, you know, or Asian and, you know, or whatever. Like, everything is pretty self-contained as it relates to our ethnic demographics. So, number one, when I started teaching foreign language at the high school, I already had the obstacle of coming in, not only as a new teacher, but coming in and the school year had already started. So I got hired in November. The kids had been without a teacher for a long while, so I already had that initial roadblock to overcome but then they're looking at me like girl we're like a lot of the kids they they thought I was some type of African like or someone who was born abroad like how you know all these languages like you teach French and Spanish like you the whole foreign language department where you from right here right here in Chicago. So you can't tell me that you can't do this because of where you from. I'm from here. And so it's real interesting now because on social media, I'm friends with some of my former students and they like, they reach back often like, Oh, Miss Winters, I want to go to such and such. Remember when you taught us about this country and I'm looking at flights right now, like it made them want to see it. And it was, it was important for me to teach them that we're everywhere. Like this world is yours. It's bigger than Chicago. It's bigger than the West side. It's bigger than the South side. It's bigger than your block. It's bigger than your friends. And You can have whatever you want out of this world. And a lot of that has, I mean, and if you speak a foreign language, that makes it that much easier. Like outside of teaching, I'm an avid traveler. Traveling is what actually helped me learn Spanish. I was self-taught, but it's because I was, I knew I wanted to be able to go to these places. I knew I didn't want to be immediately identified as a tourist or as like an ignorant American who thinks everyone is supposed to speak English. Like if I go to a Spanish speaking country, I can speak Spanish and it makes everyone more comfortable. People appreciate it. Like, Oh, you speak Spanish. But even outside of that though, more enslaved Africans got brought to Spanish speaking parts of the so-called new world then got brought to America. 90% of Dominicans have African heritage. Brazil is the second largest African nation outside of Nigeria in terms of population of people who identify as African. So when you teach kids who, I mean, to be perfectly honest, really don't 
other than just passing, they're not like really invested in learning Spanish. Like to them, it's kind of like for what? What I need to know Spanish for? I ain't Mexican, you know. And that that's a lot of the the thought. But when you show them like there is more blacks in Mexico than there are in the U.S. There's more blacks in Puerto Rico than you know. When you show them like yeah, we're everywhere, you know. I took a trip to Colombia and one of the most not even one of the most memorable experience was when a older Colombian man came up to me and put his arm next to mine and you know and told me in Spanish like we're the same color like we're the, you know you such a beautiful color like we are everywhere and when you could when I saw their eyes and their faces, like as they're really taking it in, number one, as a teacher, we're all excited to teach our kids something new, but for them to see themselves in other places around the world, you know, we're watching a, a documentary on the African presence in Mexico and they're looking at this black Spanish speaking man who looks like their dad or their uncle you know, or their mom is like, oh, wait a minute. Like, we aren't just this. Because in it's, our story is not taught as history. It's an elective, you know. And I made a, I made a post on Facebook the other day. I was going over my, my nephew's homework with him. And he's going over his American, he's doing his American history book. And so I was just... I was I was interested to see like how they dealt with the issue of slavery and it was only there were just a few chapters that discussed it and it only referenced it like in in reference as it related to the civil war but it didn't actually talk about the brutality and the inhumane things that happened or that these were like people you know like for so long we were basically just taught like that our history starts with slavery and that's just it and so i was like yep nope we're doing some supplemental lessons today like you have to know what the book says because that's what you get graded on but in real life i'm grading you on what you know for real and these books aren't going to teach it to us until we're the ones to start writing the books. Hoo-wee, Miss Winters. You have laid it all out. And you keep saying, like, our story has not been told. And I think it's because our story has been purposefully and intentionally erased from all different areas in education. Uh-huh. How have all of your global travels influenced your curriculum as you design it to teach your students like you said we are everywhere how so how have all of these trips influenced how you teach our students so even though i'm a foreign language instructor i teach my class as a geography class a social studies class from the perspective of world history but more specifically through the lens of african people in those times so while we're learning about the 21 nations around the world that speak spanish yes we need to know the generic what's the capital what's the population okay but digging deeper what percentage of that population is of african descent and what is life like for africans in those countries how do they live compared to how you live and more times than not they see the same subjugated people marginalized people you know the black people in these countries are living at a lower standard of life the same way that they do in this country one of the largest tools that i found that my kids really connected with was dr henry lewis gates ran a special on PBS about the African experience in Latin America. And it was a five-part series, I believe. And I taught those to my kids so that they could see 
actually the history of where African people have been taken and where they still are. So I try to make my classes be more globally and not just wrote memorization of yo soy to edis like (laughs) i mean that you need to know that but i wouldn't be interested in just sitting and learning that if if i didn't see a next step Mm -hmm. it's like okay am i going to one of these countries why do i need to know this you know but when you see that it's a whole lot of black kids who look like me who live in these countries who speak these languages and who have the same experiences as I do, but we can't talk to each other because we don't speak the same language. Miss Winters can teach you how. Miss Winters can teach us how. (laughs) Speaking of lessons that Miss Winters teaches, I have a question for you and I'm so very curious to hear your answer because I know that you are going to look at it through all of your different lenses. Okay. What is the state of education in Black America, and how did we get here? (laughs) The state of education in Black America, the status is abysmal. Our children are not being educated fully, and they have not fully been educated ever since we've been in this country and this system has set up, you know, Carter G. Woodson told us and wrote about the miseducation of the Negro. It it is purposeful and fully intentional to keep us ignorant and to compartmentalize our experiences, but through their lens, which is why, like I said, you know, when I saw the way that my, nephew's history book referenced slavery it was from a uber christian white conservative lens that the publishers of the book themselves had instead of it actually showcasing what was really going on learning starts at home but most of us even our parents They can't teach you what they don't know. And if they weren't taught it, they don't know it. So we end up perpetuating these broken systems that have continued to miseducate us because we don't know any better. We go to school to learn. And our parents, our grandparents had all this blind faith in the education system. And your teacher know what she's saying, but most of our grandparents grew up with white teachers if they even had access they even had access to schools because my great-grandmother was a sharecropper but the way that they were taught was generally not from a black perspective and it was taught that like these things happen and they were destined to happen and it was supposed to happen and that's just the way that it is and so our parents our grandparents sent our parents off to these systems, you know, and then our parents just, you know, when, when you know better, you do better. But if you don't know, you can't. So that's why every chance I get, we, I don't care what we're talking about. If it's black related, I'm going to bring it in. Like, well, <laughs> did you know? <laughs> How, okay, so even going with that one, and you brought up your nephew's textbook and how it wrote about slavery, and he's in elementary school. You've also taught early childhood and had experience in high schools. Are schools designed for children of color? No. No, not not public schools, not charter schools. One of my brothers... Okay, I can't fully say not charter schools. One of my brothers went to Betty Shabazz. There was a charter school named Betty Shabazz here in Chicago. And it was an intentionally African school. Like, all of their curriculum was African-based, Black-based. You know, yes, they had math. Yes, they had science. But there was very much an awareness that you are a black person in this world and that you are great. 
And what did they call their teachers? They didn't call them Miss and Mister. Now that I don't remember. I feel like it was a word for auntie. It probably was. It was, it, and and they they taught um, Swahili. Mm-hmm. They taught them Swahili there, and also Portuguese. But that's because Portuguese is the language of Brazil, which has, as I stated earlier, the second largest population of African people in the world. But what they actually called their teachers, that I do not remember. Uh, but like I remember they had to do a whole rites of passage ceremony type thing where the young men and women had to learn to trust each other. Like that was an actual African themed school and it was very well rounded. But in general, the school system is not created for our children at all. It's not. The school system is set up to feed the 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 school to prison pipeline. Period. That's how they teach our black kids. Even when you think about the fact that they're they call them resource officers, but there are police in our schools. Why are there police in our schools? Why are we so rigid with making children follow these rules on the straight and arrow and you have to go here and then be out and then do this. Like, are they in jail? No, but are we preparing them for jail? Absolutely. Because that's the same type of logic that they're going to be presented with. Those are the same type of instructions that they're going to be presented with. We are, I ain't going to say we, cause we includes me. I'm not doing that. They <laughs> are not preparing black children to be leaders. They are preparing black children to continue to be slaves in the prison system because the 13th amendment says slavery is legal in jail when you in jail you're a slave and that's where they want us to be Mm. they don't want to be anything other than that it's like so many things that i'm thinking about just with our own experiences in education in Chicago and what we have seen with schools in Chicago and you talking about resource officers or what about resources? I don't even understand how that, how that title got shifted. When did they go from security to becoming resource? And this ain't even shades to anybody that's in that role. It's just really interesting how we use language and how we're trying to repurpose and rebrand having officers in the building. You Baby, you just said a word. We don't have resources, but we have resource officers. How? How? I mean, and then, you know, that goes also to the language and the the defund the, the defund police movement that's going on. More than a third of the city's budget in Chicago goes towards police officers goes towards the the police force. The amount of payouts that the Chicago Police Department, the settlements that they have to make for wrongdoing, taxpayers pay that. But taxpayers also pay for our schools and our schools aren't getting the money. Our children aren't getting this. But if that money was allocated towards social services, then we wouldn't need these alleged resource officers in our schools. People put so much onus on children. They're children. Why do why do we think that a 16-year-old is supposed to, to act like a 38-year-old or a 40-year-old? They're 16 years old, you know? And there's a reason that children act out. There's a, there's a reason why these children are angry. And I'll be the first to tell you, yeah, kids can get mad disrespectful. Uh, I am not ever going to not say that. But I also have to sit back and think, why are you so angry? And at the end of the day, nine times out of ten, it's because of some type of social service that could have been, like, if they had someone to talk to if they had something to do you know like if they had an outlet for their energy or for their emotions 
then they wouldn't be this way in the classroom. You know, is is I, I have to step outside of myself. Like, you know, now sometimes these kids do just be mad at Miss Winters, and that's fine. I can take it. You know, but sometimes it's not that they're mad at me. They're just angry. Period. Because life sucks for them. You know, and we can sit back and be like, oh, well, you have a thousand dollar iPhone in your hand and you should blah, 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 blah. But I think it's really easy for adults to forget that we were kids, too. And you're only a kid for 18 years. And then it's over. And, you know, and a lot of these kids don't even get to be kids during that time. A lot of these kids are raising their siblings. I did it. You know, like they're responsible. They're growing up way before they have to. And again, that comes back to the fact they, their mom or their dad or their parents have to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week to pay the rent and be able to put food on the table for them. So now you're 18 years old but and you're late to school every day, but that's because you had to go take your younger siblings to school and make breakfast and go over homework and do all of these things as a country first of all we should be ashamed america shame on you america shame on you this should not be the norm and it is shame on you just like just shame on you it is a shame, like the lack of resources that our students have. And you mentioned some just talking about if they had resources to help them channel their energy or deal with mental health, understand like stress and coping mechanisms and therapy, but even family resources. We deal with so many students that are homeless, so much food insecurity, health issues, students that cannot see the board, but can't say that they can't see the board. Uh So many things that could lead to a student being angry and that anger manifesting itself in so many different ways that go misread and unread and uninterpreted or misinterpreted because we don't recognize black kids as kids. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. And then you have resource officers dragging a student down the stairs and now Chicago police, a $300,000 payout to this student. It's really unfortunate. And like I said, it it sets us up for a police state. But in this country, the police department as we know it was started as slave patrols. Break it down. Tell us more. So as we, the police department, as we know it, was created when there were as slave patrols to capture or recapture runaway enslaved people. You know, that's why we have all of these state laws. Like, that's why we have the Dred Scott state where Dred Scott ran away and he came to Illinois, which was supposed to be a free state. But... They were like, yeah, nah, the state part don't even matter. Just because if you was a slave, you're going to stay a slave. And they found him and brought him back, you know, but everything about our police force and its foundation is on locking up black people, period, you know, and, and the statistics don't lie when, when we can watch video evidence of white perpetrators committing all types of egregious acts and the police use a plethora of of means to stop them or subdue them and then there are sirens going on in the background haha <laughs> you know I'm talking about you living um, in Chicago baby <laughs> but we have a Philando Castile 
who informs the officers that he has a conceal and you know he's licensed to conceal and carry yes i can get my stuff but when i reach for it this is gonna be there and then he's shot in front of his girlfriend and her child who i believe was like eight years old at the time in the back in the back seat of the car just complete disregard for black life because from inception we we ain't never been more than three-fifths to them we ain't never been more and never were even that and we were never supposed to be more because this condition was supposed to be forever in perpetuity yep in perpetuity so it, it is really interesting when we think about the different systems that exist and how these different systems are interconnected and how police and education and school environments and resources all get packaged together. I mean, let's think about the fact that it was illegal for black people to know how to read. It was against the law. And who are the who are the upholders of the law? The police. And what could happen to you if they found you reading? What could happen to you? You would be killed. Like you could be killed for knowing how to read. For having knowledge, we would be killed. If that untell you the state of this nation. And it hasn't changed. Like, we like to think that it has. No. It's been just been dressed up in fancier, you know, legal jargon. It, it gets hidden in redlining codes and, uh, with bank loans and, and how districts get drawn up, how resources get allocated. The, the language just changed, but the sentiment is exactly the same. It's really incredible how all of it plays together. Even when you talk about like the diaspora and where we were all taken and the fact that we are everywhere and the fact that our story is not told and we, we think that our history begins as slavery. And then what we do learn about slaves, we learn about like, oh, this slave invented this, this slave invented that. It took me to be about this year, this year's years old, where I started <laughs> to realize like, it's not that slaves came over here and invented stuff. It's that the brilliance was in Africa before it was pillaged and raped and brought Amen. over here. The brilliance Amen. had been there. Yeah. And, and I had even today was watching a documentary on YouTube about the slave trade. And even in some of their talking about language and repurposing and their marketing materials and advertising materials, when they were selling slaves, they said like very industrious in this they understand uh-huh. this knowledge they're very familiar with this y'all knew that we were brilliant you knew that and here and this is why it relates to education and you just said it right now they know we're brilliant so they have to keep us from knowing that we're brilliant they know exactly who we are we don't know who we are and that's the problem we don't know who we are because if we did, we wouldn't allow this stuff to happen the way that it does. They take our ancient schools of thought, our mythology, our pedagogy, and all of that. They use it. And they have corrupted it and usurped it and made it their own. So now we're listening, you know, to the Socrates and Plato. They got all of that from us. They got that from us. They got that from Egypt. They got that from Nubia. They got that from Mali. The oldest university in the world is in Timbuktu. You know, like everybody went to Africa to get their knowledge. And then they was like, whoa, wait a minute, little baby. They heard about Mansa Musa and his tour and his I generosity that threw the off the economy. Mansa Musa today with the boys richest man who ever lived ever lived had so much money he he decimated european countries money he gave away so much money so much gold that he decimated complete economies you know but but we don't know about that 
you know, they think we just lived in huts and we sit there with flies on our eyes, like in the Feed the Children commercial or something. And that's it. They know who we are. You know, if Africa was as poor as they tell us Africa is, they wouldn't be there. <laughs> they wouldn't be there. Europeans vacation in Africa. Black Americans vacation in Europe. The miseducation of the Negro. <laughs> and I've, I've been to several European nations. I have. You know, it's cheap to go there. You know, I've also been to the continent, though. But, yeah, but we don't... It, like I said, they know who we are. That's why they go there. And then they make us think that it's so bad. Like, the worst thing that somebody could have called you when you were a kid in grammar school was an African, African booty scratcher. We knew it. <laughs> we knew it. You know? And I used, I participated in it. I didn't know any better. You know? I didn't know any better. I just thought, oh, we were just slaves. And it was like, I mean, we had roots and Kunta Kente and no, I'm Toby. You know, but even And you that, know Roots was fake, right? Pardon? You know Roots was fake? Yes. So you even want to talk about the marketing and the, the images that we are allowed to see. So we see this and then come to find out years later, years later, uh -huh. <laughs> this is fake too? It's okay. Right, because they still want to present it through their lens. Through and, their lens. And the brutality of it was just like at a at a reasonable, at a PG could be shown on Channel 7 level. Like, nah, that ain't what y'all was doing for real. Like, yeah, y'all was doing that, but y'all was doing a whole bunch more too. Oh. You know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And even though my title is a foreign language teacher, it would be so hard to stay fully on task some days because if my students ask me a question, like a real life question, I'm about to give you a Miss Winters is gonna give you a real life answer. I don't care what do now or exit ticket I had planned for the day. I don't care what verbs we were about to be conjugating. That was a real good question. We about to talk about this right now. And we'll pick up on the lesson tomorrow, you know, but it's so important to just teach black children everything. Teach them their essence. Teach them it's the essential part of like knowing who you are has been taken from us. So going back to the beginning, you know, when I told you that my first grade teacher told me that I was Nigerian, it was definitely some racist bull that she said, and I'm quite sure she probably aligned herself as a liberal white woman who thought she was telling me something good. But the fact of it was, was that those little white kids knew what city in Poland their granny came from what city in Greece their yaya came over from you know what province in China all of this and we don't have that connection to our heritage it's been stolen from us all I know is clearly I'm from the continent but do I know if I'm Yoruba or Hausa or Igbo or Ashanti or Efek or any of that? No, I don't because that was taken from me. That was taken from my people. And so we are just lost because we don't know who we are. It's so important to be able to connect with our ancestors, like to know where home is. You know, and we only get so many generations of it. We can only go so far back on our trees. And then at some point it just stops. And it usually stops at the point where we got here because there aren't too many records saying, oh, you know, this slave was taken from an Ashanti village in Angola. You know, like we don't know that. And considering the fact that a lot of the enslaved Africans that were brought to America didn't come straight from Africa anyway. 
most of those slaves went to the Caribbean where slaves were broken in and they were seasoned and then they got sent to South Carolina, Georgia, you know, and Alabama and those places after they had already been on the plantations in the Caribbean. So even then they didn't come directly from the continent. But the good thing about those communities in like South Carolina, like the Gullah Geechee people, because of the the way that the land was set up and a lot of the, the plantations were out on little islands, the enslaved people got to keep a lot of their traditions because they weren't living in the same place that the slave owner lived in. The owner would row out on the boat every couple of weeks and make sure everything was okay. But other than that, they got to, you know, continue their heritage as best they knew how, you know, even the Negro spiritual, uh, Kumbaya, that comes, that's a Gullah, Gullah Geechee song, but is Kumbaya is come by here. But the accent and the way that they said it, it became Kumbaya, 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 you know. So certain pockets got to be able to retain culture, language. But most of us absolutely have no idea. And we don't know we don't even know how far it goes back because even once they outlawed the bringing of enslaved Africans to this country, they still were doing it. They just found Clotilda, the last slave ship. They just found that recently. Mm-hmm. They were sneaking slaves over. Yeah, that's what the whole movie Amistad was about. You know, they they were still participating in the slave trade even after it was outlawed. And then you think about Juneteenth. Like, when you think about all of the injustices and how these systems were designed to keep people from the continent of Africa enslaved in perpetuity forever and ever and ever and ever. Forever forever and ever and ever and ever. And there has been a, like you said, there's been a continuous effort to uphold this. It does not stop. Like, not one administration, like, everyone is complicit in it. Everybody is complicit in it, you know? And I can't even remember what the document name is. I'll Google it and tell it to you later. But under the Carter administration, everybody just loves Jimmy Carter. He was a Southern Baptist, and everybody just loves Jimmy Carter. Under the Carter administration, there was a directive that went out that basically was aimed to keep blacks in America from building relationships with blacks on the continent. Basically to like, just keep us separated to keep a rip. I wouldn't be surprised if it was the CIA who created the term African booty scratcher. (laughs) It's amazing how different administrations have tried to deal with the problem of these African descendants in their country of America because one of them cre- helped create Liberia to send us back. What administration was that? The Monroe, James under President James Monroe. That's why the capital of Liberia is Monrovia. Tried to send us back. Not Marcus Garvey sent us back, but like, okay, here, go take. So now you've gone back over there displace some more indigenous people right some native indigenous africans to create a space for africans that you stole you don't even know where you stole them from and you're just gonna drop them back off here but it sounds about right because it's just like the scramble for africa we're different yeah sounds about right that's what they do talk about we're not even gonna talk about the scramble. Can you please tell us Africa a little bit about the, the scramble? Conference of 1914, you know, where just all these heads of state of these European nations got together and decided how they were going to divide up Africa. And even listing sanctions, like at a certain point, Germany lost some of the holdings that they had because World War One had happened during that place. So they basically made like 
Germany pay reparations to the other countries. Like, this ain't yours. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? But see, but that's the problem. It, it was the it was the curse of the continent. Africa didn't have a lot of warrior tribes because there was no need for warrior tribes. When you live in a land of abundance, when I can walk outside and pick my food off the tree or know that if I drop a seed in the ground, it's going to grow and produce food or I can hunt and get what I need. There's no need for me to create an army. You know what I'm saying? So we, the only warrior tribes that we really had were the Zulu. And then we had the women warriors from Dahomey, which is in modern day Gambia near Senegal. And in Angola, Queen Nzinga raised the army to fight the, the Portuguese. But in general, we didn't have a culture of war. But you know who did? People who came out of them caves during the Ice Age and had to scavenge and scour for food and for resources. That's why, you know, their culture is that built on warfare. Like, if you take a history course, a European history, whatever, and you have the Goths and the Vithagoths and the this and the that, they were all warrior clans because they were fighting for resources. Africans didn't have to do that. That's why we were able to be taken over. That's why, you know, and and we didn't we didn't mind sharing knowledge because knowledge is power. Why wouldn't I tell you these things? Like not thinking that you're going to use what I taught you against me. That's such an American thing. Even before America was America, it was such an American concept to take what you've taught <laughs> and use it against you to harm you. Speaking mm-hmm. of American and American things, why do black people in America, why do we owe gratitude to Haiti and our ancestors who fought in Haiti? Baby, the Haitians wasn't playing. The Haitians were not playing. Officially, the Haitian Revolution is dated as ending January 1st, 1804. But the Haitian Revolution actually started in August 1791 it actually commenced with a a voodoo ceremony the people got together they were over this it it happened in the woods called Bois de Cayman or the Cayman is a word a Cayman is like a small alligator like the Cayman Islands or whatever and they were over it and it was like look we ain't here for this slavery we're not here for this. So the the first round of it actually did start, like I said, with a voodoo ceremony. There were hundreds of planned attacks on slave owners throughout the countryside. And I wasn't like, you can't be diplomatic with people who think they own you. I'm not about to sit down and ask you anything. How can I be reasonable and you think that you own me? I am a whole living person. And not only that you own me, you will own my offspring, my children. Nah, we ain't got nothing to talk about. Off with their heads. That's what the Haitians were like. And when it finally culminated, it was Jean-Jacques Dessalines who ended out the war. Like a lot of praise gets given to Tucson Loverture, but Tucson kind of fumbled the bag. He was born a slave, but he wanted to cow tie to the French. Like, he was all with the French pomp and circumstance. And then they ended up playing him and turned on him, and he died in exile. Desalines told him from the jump, you can't trust them. How can you trust the French? And they own us, you know. But Desalines saw them to the promised land, and the Haitian government issued a decree, like, if you can get to Haiti, you're free. If you can get here, you're free. And it freaked the world out. It freaked the the slave owners in other Caribbean nations, especially in a Dominican Republic who shares the same island, which is why now you have such anti-Black sentiments in the DR, but that's a whole other... That's a whole, that's a talk that talk with, with, with <laughs> money. 
podcast interview, you know, and but Haiti said, no, I'll die for real, for real. One of us going to die. And it ended up being the French. And the Haitian Revolution actually took place during the Jefferson administration here in the U.S. And it resulted in the Louisiana Territory, or what we know as the Louisiana Purchase, which at the time doubled the size of the United States. Because at that time, the U.S. didn't have any territory west of the Mississippi River. But France had to make up for its debt in the stuff that it lost when it lost the war with Haiti. Like, I mean, and let's just, first of all, just shout out to Haiti, but the French don't win a war with nobody. I mean, and I, yes, I'm a Francophile. I am. But the French just being, <laughs> they buds beat by everybody, you know. But it was the Louisiana Purchase that effectively doubled the size of America. And in terms of what we owe, it's the sense of fight but on the flip side slave laws and slave codes here in america increased because they were so afraid of their slaves doing what the haitians did and bounties for runaway slaves were increased laws had much harsher power like everything was like super duper enforced anything everything was a violation as a result of that, because all slave owners throughout the Americas were terrified of their slaves doing what the Haitians did. When I would talk to my kids, I would tell them, like, once you have the mental hold on somebody, you completely own them because none of those plantations have fences around them like i mean and even if they did it weren't it wasn't like they were electroshock fences or you know the ones that had the cut up barbed wire you know what i'm saying like but their mind was taken and that's why they were able to be enslaved there was nothing physical actually keeping them like they could have all said one night like yo it's 500 of us they might catch 50 of us, but the rest of us are out. You know what I'm saying? But because of the mental lock and then tattletale slaves were rewarded. That's why all the all of the slave uprisings were were stopped. Like they really didn't get to fully go through because you were rewarded for telling. So it, it created a sense of, I ain't got to be like, like we ain't together. But you still a slave too. Us versus yeah. them, crab in a your- barrel. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting just talking about Haiti and what the image of Haiti became because of the result of this. But number one, when you just learn about the history and the origin story of so many things in this country... If you learn about zombies, that comes out of Haiti. That comes out of Haiti. And they were talking about what it meant to be a zombie before Hollywood got its interpretation of a zombie. It was when you are mindless, your spirit is broken, and it's just you and your body just mindless work. That's slavery. That's what they Uh were talking about. And Uh that was a fate that was worse than death. Yep. Yeah, man. Because it's like you're stuck in, in a purgatory. Yep. And you can't live, but you're not dead. Yep. You know, and then they took it and even corrupted that, you know, and 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 tell us that voodoo is evil and like our African spirituality is evil. So now when you reference anything in regards to traditional African spirituality, a lot of our own people look at you like, we can't even oh. know and understand African deities, but the days of the week are named after, I don't even know what those deities are. What are they? Roman gods, a lot of the times, or the moon, like Monday is the moon's day. Thursday is Thor's day. 
Yeah, Saturday is Saturn. Is is Saturn? You know. It's amazing that we can pull from and we don't even recognize that we pull from all of these other cultures and their ancestral rituals and how they worshipped and their deities. But the moment you talk about African ancestry or African deities, it's the devil. Haiti. But here's the thing. Those European deities aren't theirs. It's ours. They got them when they came into Africa and then renamed them and added their own spin to it. Like, again, they continuously take our stuff, plagiarize and repurpose it, and then make us think that our stuff is evil. Why? Because they use our stuff to get ahead. They are tapped in. Baby, I can guarantee you more white people know who Oshun is than blacks. They tap into that energy. It is there and they know it. We know that because we saw Paula White when she was praying for Donald Trump's re-election when she called on the African angels. We saw it on TV. So we know that they tap in. And that's why it's so important, as you stated this entire interview, that black people, we have to learn our own story. We have to teach black children anything so that we can become tapped into who we really are as well. And that's the issue. Like, man knows thyself. We don't, we are so disconnected from our power because we have allowed others. And it's, it's like the Audrey, the Audrey Lord, uh, quote if you don't define yourself for yourself you'll be wrapped up in other people's definition of you and be eaten alive like it was something along those lines i'm sure i didn't quote it exactly but when you don't know who you are you give your power of identification to other people and then they tell you who you are like Miss Scully telling me I'm a Nigerian. I might very well be. You know what I'm saying? But she ain't know that. No, you she are. She ain't know that. She just said that to me like, oh, you black, so you Nigerian. Girl. You are an <laughs> African American princess. You called this thing. I told her. My mama went to the school and went on. Good. Um. <laughs> Good. I really appreciate you joining us on the show, walking us through all of your experiences and breaking it down. Why it's so important, number one, to have black educators. Number two, why it's so important for students to see black educators teaching different subjects as a black woman from the south side of Chicago being a foreign language teacher and showing them how your global travels have connected you with other black people speaking these foreign languages so that they can really see the next step. You probably have encouraged so many students for, to get their passports, start getting their passport stamp up, and in turn, their families, their communities, their friends, like really opened up an entire world for them. So thank you so much for sharing your story. You're so welcome. Are there any black educators that you would like to thank? Miss Brenda Claibon, who was my fifth grade teacher at McDay, she was also the upper middle school um, science teacher, and she was a hard ass. Like, <laughs> she was, but I appreciate her for it because she, she didn't accept anything other than excellence. And part of my... T- teaching style comes from her because most of the time when people fail it's not because they can't do it it's because they believe that they can't do it and I'm not going to give you that option you know and so for example if if I give an assessment when I give an assessment the minimum score that I will take is a 90 percent I'll allow you to take the assessment as many times as you need to, you know, until you master it. But you're, you're, no, you're not going to give me a B. You're not going to give me a C. I'm not taking it and you shouldn't either. And so I was met with a lot of resistance 
from it at first, but then it got to the point where, you know, I would have a student who would get a, a 90 or a 92% or so on the first go. And they'll be like, oh, Miss Winters, I got a 92, but I want to take it again until I get a hundred. Okay, baby, go ahead. You know, but I thank Miss Brenda Claibon for that. I also, and it's so funny that the teachers that I'm shouting out are the subjects that I absolutely detest. But I would also <laughs> like to shout out uh, Miss Yolanda Wallace, who was my third grade teacher and who was the math teacher at McDay. And I hate science and I hate math. Like, those are not my fortes at all. But they're the ones that I remember the most because they made learning fun and they didn't they didn't let us think that we were anything less than excellent and they and they wouldn't take anything from us that wasn't excellent so miss lawless miss claybon shout out to you thank Two beautiful you. black women educators Thank you so much, Miss Winters. And again, I'm just so glad that you took that leap of faith and accepted that phone call when you got the call, when you was on vacation <laughs> and you found out that your friend had submitted your resume without your permission. No, I, I thank you so much for like, as much as I'm talking now about not accepting anything less than excellence, like I didn't see that in myself and you did. And... I'm eternally grateful and thankful to you for that. Cause I was, I was fine. Like coasting in, in the middle, like, yeah, nah, but I am excellence and I should be teaching. I'm a whole story, you know, and there are a lot of kids, not just in Chicago period, who are me, just a little black girl, you know, growing up and trying to make it through stuff, you know, but I didn't want to do it. And you were like, yeah, nah, you don't, you're going to do it. And so. Cause we got work to do. We got work to do. We got work to do for the culture. <laughs> so uh, thank you for everything that you've done. It was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. I share. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.